This is Gil Manser. Welcome you to Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Last month's guests were the talented graphic artists Maya Kobabe and Trinidad Escobar, who shared verbal descriptions of Maya's lushly illustrated comics, The Thief's Tale, and her award-winning Tom O'Bedlam. And Trinidad's biomythography, Crushed, which explores the interior landscape of her experience as a magical transnational Filipino adoptee. During our conversation, Trinidad shared how she needed to carry a dead baby's first name for most of her life, because adoption paperwork had already been approved with that name. I made reference at that time to the Chinese immigrant Paper Sons that Lisa C. wrote about in her novel Shanghai Girls and talked about on a word-by-word show broadcast in June 2009. Listeners let me know they were unable to find a podcast of that show, so I am rectifying that problem by doing this rebroadcast. In that show, Lisa C. introduced us to Shanghai girls Pearl and May, sisters who escaped from the war-torn China of the 1930s to Angel Island in the San Francisco Bay and on to Los Angeles, where they got involved in the movie business. Listeners will be glad to hear that in Lisa C.'s novel Pearls of Joy, they can read about Pearl's 19-year-old daughter, Joy, who makes the trip the other way, back to a China, trapped in the disastrous consequences of Mao's cultural revolution. I know you will enjoy my conversation with Lisa C. as she talks about her own family and the Shanghai girls. Lisa, not to give too much away, your novel starts in Shanghai with Pearl and May, two privileged sisters who model to popular calendar art and pay for their fancy clothes and nightclubs that way. The cover of your book shows one of these paintings, and several more are displayed in your web pages. Why don't you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about the Shanghai of 1937 and being a so-called beautiful girl in that cosmopolitan city? Shanghai in 1937 was the, the Paris of Asia. It was a very glamorous city. It was a city of great contrast and great diversity. So on one end, you had tremendous poverty and beggars and rickshaw pullers. And at the other end, these people of great wealth who had come there and, you know, built these mercantile empires. Mm -hmm. And then everyone in between. And people, as I said, had come from all over the world to be there. They'd come from France and settled in the French concession. There were people who had escaped out of Russia during the revolution and so this, you know, and found refuge. The white Russians. The white Russians. There were people in 1937, Jews, who were already leaving Germany, Mm -hmm. trying to stay ahead of Hitler. And then uh, the British, who kind of ran Shanghai and had had this, you know, their race courses and their private clubs and the parks where they didn't allow Chinese. And then, of course, all the Chinese as well and gangsters and nightclubs and and a lot of people who came to Shanghai for the sort of seamy side of life, you know, for, for prostitution and drugs and all any bad thing that you could think of doing, you could have done in Shanghai With in nineteen thirty seven. Fabulous red light district. Yes. Yes. And this was actually sort of the last moment 
before Shanghai started to go down. Mm -hmm. Um, The Japanese invaded in August of 1937. The Sino-Japanese War sort of evolved into World War II. And as soon as World War II was over, there was the Civil War. And once Mao took power, that was really kind of it for Shanghai. So the government looked at Shanghai as like um, a, a woman who has a bad past. Mm. You know, so she shady was, past. Yeah, very shady and disreputable past. And um, the city suffered a lot under Mao. And it really wasn't until about 1995 that it had began to have this resurgence. And so today, Shanghai is probably not the Paris of Asia. It might be closer to being the New York of Asia. And maybe even that isn't correct. Maybe New York is the Shanghai of the rest of the world. <laughs> That's certainly a, a more ancient city. Right. Right. And so you asked about beautiful girls. Beautiful uh-huh. girls were young models in Shanghai who were advertising this new modern womanhood for China. The Western woman. It wasn't necessarily Western, but it definitely wasn't the you know the woman of of their mothers or their grandmothers these were women who didn't have bound feet they were well educated they didn't have to have arranged marriages they expected to marry for love they were doing all of these new kinds of things like playing tennis golfing uh, diving into pools uh, in, in these advertisements, you right. know, stepping off of airplanes and waving, driving cars, dancing in nightclubs. Touching in public. Touching in public. And so these posters were advertising this new kind of life, and they were very beautiful. Um, and uh, in the margins along the bottom and on the sides were the things they were selling, everything mm-hmm. from matches to carburetors, from baby formula to, um, I don't know, just perfume. I mean, just everything you could imagine. I've been collecting that poster art for years and years. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, I don't know, 15 or so years. And I have a poster right on the left side of my bed that I see when I go to sleep and see when I wake up the first thing in the morning. And it's really a beautiful poster. It has two women in it, and one is seated And the other one is sort of leaning over her, and they're in this room that's just all these beautiful kind of pastel colors, and it's very lush and very pretty. And the girls themselves, they were called beautiful girls. Mm -hmm. So these, you know, creamy complexions and beautiful hair. These two girls happen to be wearing Western-style dresses with little cinched waists and um, kind of an art deco pattern in the fabric. And they look so lovely. You know, they just look so lovely. But falling down around them in the poster are all of these dead bugs and insects because actually what it's an ad for is earth bug and insect spray. <laughs> and so the one who's seated, who looks so pretty and demure, she's holding one of those old-fashioned oh, yes. uh, bug, bug right, right. Uh, pumper things. So these they also did have a lot of humor, which is one of the reasons I like them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because uh, what you describe in your book is that we think of calendar art, at least I think of it, as something that you know that you saw at the uh, repair shop when you went in and there'd be a photograph usually of a, of a beautiful girl. Mm-hmm. And then um, you know, it'd have the, the calendar on the bottom. And that you explain how that every level of society has these in their houses. Right. Regu- some for you know having the calendar so they know you know which day of the month it is, et cetera, and others to bring a touch of color and mm-hmm. uh, gaiety and life and 
and right. aspirations, I guess. Yeah, typically these were given away as special promotions by businesses. Mm-hmm. So whether it was the dry goods store or um, a pharmacy or, or you know, again, a place that was making cigarettes, they would give them to their special customers. Right. And then from those good homes, they would start trickling down. So you could buy them on the street. And then finally, after a certain amount of time, they would make their way all the way down to the the lowest level of society, to the beggars mm-hmm. and the rickshaw mm-hmm. pullers, who then would put these up in their, their houses or, you know, their shacks, their rooms, um, to give them some color and to give them this sort of vision of this life that for some people they wish to attain and might actually attain it. And for many, of course, they never could. Right. Let me have you read a bit from your book. This is uh, when the, uh, the the sisters are going out to a uh, modeling gig. Recently, we cut our long hair and got permanence. May now parts my hair down the middle and then slicks the curls back behind my ears, where they puff out like black-petaled peonies. Then I comb her hair, letting the curls frame her face. We add pink crystal drop earrings, jade rings, and gold bracelets to complement our outfits. Our eyes meet in the mirror. From the posters on the walls, multiple images of us join May and me in the reflection. We hold that for a moment, taking in how pretty we look. We are 21 and 18, we are young, we are beautiful, and we live in the Paris of Asia. We clatter back back downstairs, call out hasty goodbyes, and step out into the Shanghai night. Our home is in the Hongku district, just across Suzhou Creek. We aren't part of the official international settlement, but we're close enough to believe we'll be protected from possible foreign invaders. We aren't terribly rich, but then isn't that always a matter of comparison? We're just getting by, according to British, American, or Japanese measures, but we have a fortune by Chinese standards, although some of our countrymen live in the city are wealthier than many foreigners combined. We are Kao Tian, Hua Jian, superior Chinese, who follow the religion of Cheng Yang, worshipping all things foreign, from the westernization of our names to the love of movies, bacon, and cheese. We are members of the Bourjaoya, bourgeois class. Our family is prosperous enough that that even our seven servants take turns eating their meals on the front steps, letting the rickshaw pullers and beggars who pass by know that those who work for the chins have regular food to eat and a reliable roof over their heads. We walk to the corner and bargain with several shirtless and shoeless rickshaw boys before settling on a good price. We climb in and sit side by side. Take us to the French concession, May orders. The boys' muscles contract and with the effort of, with the effort of getting the rickshaw rolling. Soon he hits a comfortable trot and the momentum of the rickshaw eases the strain on his shoulders and back. There he is, pulling us like a beast of burden, but all I feel is freedom. During the day, I use a parasol when I go shopping, visiting, or to tutor English. But at night, I don't have to worry about my skin. I sit up tall and take a deep breath. I glance at May. She's so carefree that she recklessly lets her chiang sam flap in the breeze and open all the way up her thigh. She's flirtatious, and she simply couldn't live in a better city than Shanghai to exercise her skills, her laughter, her beautiful skin, her charming conversation. We cross a bridge over Suzhou Creek and then turn right, away from the Wangpu River and its dank odors of oil, seaweed, coal, and sewage. I love Shanghai. It isn't like other places in China. 
Instead of swallowtail roofs and glass glazed tiles, we have magical big buildings that reach into the sky. Instead of moon gates, spirit screens, and intricate latticework windows and red lacquer pillars, we have neoclassical edifices in granite decorated with Art Deco ironwork, geometric designs, and etched glass. Instead of bamboo groves gracing streams or willows draping their tendrils into ponds, we have European villas with clean facades, elegant balconies, and rows of cypress and cleanly cut lawns lined with immaculate flower beds. The old Chinese city still has temples and gardens, but the rest of Shanghai kneels before the gods of trade, wealth, industry, and sin. The city has go-downs where goods are loaded and unloaded, courses for greyhound and horse racing, countless movie palaces and clubs for dancing, drinking, and having sex. Shanghai is home to millionaires, millionaires and beggars, gangsters and gamblers, patriots and revolutionaries, artists and warlords, and the Chin family. Our puller takes us down alleys just wide enough for pedestrians, rickshaws and wheelbarrows out, outfitted with benches for transporting paying customers before turning onto Bubbling Well Road. He trots, he trots onto the elegant boulevard, unafraid of the purring Chevrolets and Daimlers that hurtle past. At a stoplight, beggar children shoot into traffic to surround our rickshaw and pull at our clothes. Each block brings us the smells of death and decay, ginger and roast duck, French perfume and incense. The loud voices of native Shanghainese, the steady click-click of the abacus, and the rattle of rickshaws rolling through the streets are the background sounds that tell me this is home. Thank you. That'll be good. The, one of the scenes in, in the book that really struck me was as they're walking along the city, they step over the body of a child who's been left out right. in the street. Right. And, um, you know, in the part that you just read, the, the smell of death and... And decay, decay. Mm-hmm. Is, is all pervasive. Yes, it was. And there were so many babies left abandoned on the streets to die in Shanghai in those days that they actually had a special patrol mm. that would go through each night and pick them up and stack them, as it was described in one of these reports that I read from that time period, stacked like cordwood in these, in these uh, carts and then taken out to the outskirts of the city where they were then burned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, they go out to to fly a kite out on the outskirts of the city, and it's it's a vast open area because it's the place where things where corpses are burned, mm-hmm. and it's also the execution field. Right, right, and also a place where at that time they had some of the uh, army, the Chinese army, was stationed out right. there. Now, your mother is also a, a writer, and. Um, You've written a book with her as well. My mother and I and another friend, John Espy, wrote three books together under the name of Monica Highland. It was Uh, a pseudonym that we used. And uh, those, you know, have been long out of print. They're very hard to find. But we had so much fun writing them, you know, just a really great time writing them. And uh, one of them is called uh, 110 Shanghai Road. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we did visit. I have visited Shanghai uh, in writing before. Mm -hmm. Now you've obviously te- you've been to China on many visits as well, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, there's a in fact all of your books have a Chinese what setting element, yes, that's uh, true. mystique, uh, right. aura about them, mm-hmm. history to them, and um, I have to ask the question because you write about it as well. So I'll, uh, and of course our listeners can't know that 
you are redheaded and you say as redheaded and freckle faced. Yeah. So you're not the traditional what someone thinks of as an Asian looking person. No, I get that all the time. I imagine. <laughs> so it must be a challenge to you to um, be considered as, as Chinese American. In a sense you know, of other people's reactions rather than yeah, to you but, personally. Right, right. But I don't, you know, what other people think of me and or how they look at me, that's sort of none of my business in a way. It's, you know, that's just their perception of me. Right. I mean, I know who I am and I know what my family was. And and uh, I do ha- understand that I don't look like I'm Chinese, but... Uh, in Los Angeles, I have about 400 relatives. Mm. There are about a dozen that look like me. The majority mm-hmm. are still full Chinese and then a little bit of a spectrum in between. And so I always you know, ask people, how do you identify yourself? It's by the people you see around you. Mm-hmm. They're your mirror. Right. And so when I was growing up, that they were my mirror, the, my family, and being in Chinatown. And so um, I never really questioned that I was anything other than what they were because right. they were my family. Well, it's interesting because in uh, Los Angeles, Pasadena area, uh, most people think of C's as the candy store. I know, yeah. So. <laughs> I wish I was related to them too. <laughs> so you know, I'd like a deep discount, right. please. They said, Did you get your candy at a discount? Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Your, um, <clears throat> your great-grandfather was Fong C, who um, became the 100-year-old Godfather of Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about him. He was just a remarkable man. My, it was actually my great great grandfather who great great. Well, no, well, I was going to okay. say my great great grandfather was the first to come from China to the United States, and he and, came to work on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. Really, he was an herbalist, and uh, um, he eventually went home. And my great grandfather came when he was fourteen, and he stayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he to act- San Francisco? His first stop was to Sacramento. Actually, what happened was my great-great-grandfather um, had a fondness for women and gambling, mm. something that continues in our family even today, I'm sorry to say. But he didn't send money back home to his wife. That really? was what you were supposed to do. You were supposed he to come here. He was 14, though, when he no, came. No, this is my great-great-grandfather. Oh, okay. So yes. he was supposed to save up money and send it back home to his wife, which he didn't do because he was – Fooling around. And as a result, my great-great-grandmother was so poor that she used to carry people on her back from village to village to earn money to support her children. Wow. Finally, some people took pity on her and lent my great-grandfather, Fong Si, who was only 14, the money to come to the United States, what the Chinese called the Gold Mountain. By this time, the railroad was completed. He found his father working in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, Dad, you're a bum. Right, Go home. Right. And he did. And my great-grandfather stayed and did a lot of the jobs that immigrants do even today. You know, he swept up in factories. He washed dishes in restaurants. He worked in the fields. But by the time he was 30 in the 1880s in Sacramento, he had his first business. It was a factory that manufactured crotchless underwear for brothels. Okay. The Fredericks yes. of Hollywood of his yes. age. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. And if only he'd kept at it. Right. You know, I, we've missed the candy and now we've missed the underwear Well, business, as I but... remember, your mother wrote a book in the 70s about pornography. Yes, she yes. did. Yes, yeah. she did. So anyway, um, my great-grandfather uh, married – that his first wife here mm-hmm. was a Caucasian woman. 
Uh, they went to a lawyer who drew up a contract between two people as though they were forming a partnership because it was against uh-huh. the law, you know, in California. I was California going to ask that question. Yes. For Chinese and Caucasians, Chinese down to a quarter Chinese, to marry in this state until 1948. Right. Against the law and some you other couldn't states. own property. Other, couldn't uh, own other. property. Couldn't become a naturalized citizen. Right. So they went to a lawyer, and they eventually moved down to Los Angeles. And he, you know, he was just this pretty remarkable guy. He was the first Chinese in America to own an automobile. He used to sell tickets to see his stuffed mermaid, and you know, I'm told we still have it somewhere in the P. all T. the family Barnum stuff. as well as Frederick's yeah. of Hollywood. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and uh, he. He had you, you, this, wait a minute. Let's go back. You say we still have the stuffed mermaid? Somewhere. I've never seen it, but my family always said, oh, yeah, we still have it. It's back in the back, you know, back in the back there somewhere. So one of these days we're going to have to go back in the back It sounds like that, that's there somewhere. another novel in the yeah. West, don't you think? I mean, just <laughs> I think so. the, the search for the stuffed mermaid. Mm-hmm. Put one and of your mysteries. And what was it exactly? Well, it's probably, know. what, a manatee or something. Something. Yeah. But where, where do you get a manatee in California? I don't know. But But anyway, he had one. So, and who knows, maybe it really was a mermaid. Mm, maybe. And they used to always tell this joke in my family. Uh, a fisherman catches a mermaid and he throws her back. And the other fisherman says, why? And the first fisherman says, how? We have to think about okay, it, Okay, I'll think about that one. <laughs> why, it's like, how? you know, mermaid jokes. Okay. What happens, and and I, as you mentioned, a lot of people in the East didn't know this, and I think a lot of people in the West didn't know this. They may know Angel Island is that beautiful place to go get a picnic, you know, just take the ferry over from, you know, Sausalito or something. But it has a a history of, um, shall we say, ghost-like history, uh, not so good history about the attitudes towards specifically Chinese people and Mm -hmm. other Asians as well, but mostly the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the fact that anyone who came from China, I, I guess reading your book, from any trip, it didn't matter when you came in. That's true. You had to go to Angel Island to the to the uh, immigration center there and uh, go through a variety of harassments to determine whether or not your papers were in order and whether you could come to the country. And as happens in your book, many of the uh, people ended up staying there for long periods of time in mm-hmm. dormitories and separated men and women, of course, from each other. So families were, you know, pulled apart. Some were sent home if they had certain diseases. And um, tell me about what you felt like when you were visiting Angel Island. Well, I I was, um, you know, doing the research for the book, and I really wanted to go out there. And uh, as you know, it's been cl- the the immigration station portion of Angel Island has been closed had been closed for many many years because right. because they've been doing this big renovation. So I called the foundation and asked, you know, could is there some way could I go over with a work crew or anything? And they invited me to go on this very special tour. You know, I know a lot of people have visited Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. And if you had family that went through Ellis Island, there's something about that experience that is just very deep. You know, it's just a very deep and meaningful thing, whether it's Ellis Island or in this case, Angel Island. And to see sort of get this, to sort of walk where your grandparents and great-grandparents and where these people walked before 
and to get a sense of what they had lived through. And, of course, I have done so much research on Angel Island over the years. I have over 500 pages of um, transcripts, boarding documents, photographs, health certificates from my family that I found at the National Archive Mm -hmm. um, from when they came through Angel Island. So I had all of their words and all of their experiences, plus these photos that had, you know, there were official photos that they took at Angel Island. So I felt like I knew it, you know, like I would really know it, but I was completely unprepared for how emotional it would be, really. Mm -hmm. And to see... Well, you did feel um, the ghost, as I mentioned. Yeah, I and, think and that's I, it. And I don't not don't think I have anyone who came through Angel Island, but it's still that feeling of so many people's desperation and mm-hmm. you know and needs. What, you know, and the desire that we have, every American really, you know, had someone in their families who was crazy enough, scared enough brave enough to leave their home country right. to come here. Right. And so we nation all we are a yeah. nation of immigrants. So we all share in that experience whether they, you know, you came in through Angel Island, whether you came in from Ellis Island, whether you walked across the border, whether you came in a ship 200 years ago, we share in that experience. Mm-hmm. And this the again that sort of feeling of just literally stepping off the boat and onto this new land is very powerful but 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 at Ellis Island and also at Angel Island the hardships that people went through right. and Ellis Island I think was seen as a much more welcoming place you know you passed by the statue of liberty it had its message about give me your poor mm-hmm. et cetera et cetera and in this way, you'd pass by Alcatraz. Um, and this way, you pass, or you see it in the distance right. anyway before you go left. But you had at Ellis Island a standard 20 questions that were asked. And yes, you had to go through the physical exam. And so there were moments of humiliation. Right. But at Angel Island, instead of a standard 20 questions, the Chinese were asked anywhere from a standard 200 to a thousand questions. And they're very detailed. Very detailed and very difficult to right. answer. I mean, things that are designed to trick you into making mistakes. Mm-hmm. So things like how many steps from your street to your front door, how many trees in front of your house. Well, maybe people would get that, but how many trees in front of the house three doors down? Yes. How many windows in the house? Depends on which month. <laughs> yeah, and how many windows in the house across the street? Right. These aren't easy things sure. to to know or or even remember. And the reason this was able to trick people up was that there had been earlier immigrants who'd come through, and the inspectors would say, draw a map. Mm-hmm. Draw a map mm-hmm. of Dimtau Village. Dimtau is my family village. And so people who came through, came later in later years, who had come from Dimtau, they would, the, the inspectors would pull out that map. And if your answers didn't correspond to what somebody had answered 5, 10, 15 years Assuming earlier, that had been correct. Assuming it had been correct. Exactly. So people could be detained for a few days, weeks, months, and up to two years. Wow. You are listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writer's Show on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's show is a listener-requested reprise of the 2009 conversation with novelist Lisa C. about her novel, Shanghai Girls. Readers can follow up with Pearl and May and their 19-year-old daughter, Joy, on her quest to find her roots in the midst of Mao's cultural revolution in the novel Dreams of Joy. Lisa C.'s conversation continues through the next half hour of Word by Word, so be sure to stay tuned.
Okay, so this I can see is where Pearl and May are just coming in to arrive at Angel Island, right. and they're they're on. Um, it gives their reactions, the their, first reactions. The, yes, they're they're just this first boat um, has come, and uh, okay, so the rain gets heavier and and the wind colder. The little boat bobs in the waves. People throw up. May hangs her head over the rail and gulps in wet air. We pass an island in the middle of the bay, and for a few minutes, it looks like we're going to chug back out under the Golden Gate Bridge, out to sea, and return to China. May moans and tries to stay focused on the horizon. Then the little boat veers to the right, curves around another island, and into a small inlet where it pulls up to a wharf at the end of a long dock. Low-slung, white wooden buildings nestle on the hillside. Ahead, four stubby palm trees shiver in the wind, and the wet flag of the United States slaps noisily against its pole. A large sign reads, No Smoking. Again, everyone pushes to be the first off the boat. Whites without satisfactory paperwork first, that same man in the slicker shouts, as though his higher decibels will somehow make the people who don't understand English suddenly fluent. But of course, most of the people, most of the Chinese don't know what he's saying. The white passengers are pulled out of the line and brought forward, while a couple of squat and very solid guards push away the Chinese who've made the mistake of standing at the front of the line. But these lofan don't understand what the man in the slicker is saying either. They are, I realize, white Russians. They're lower than the poorest Shanghainese, and yet they're given special treatment. They're led off the boat and escorted into the building. What happens next is even more shocking. The Japanese and Koreans are grouped together and politely led to a different door in the building. We're ready for you now, the man in the slicker instructs. When you get off the boat, line up in two lines, men on the left, women and children under 12 on the right. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of manhandling by the guards, but once they line us up the way they want, we're led in the driving rain along the dock to the administration building. When the men are sent through one door and the women and children through another, separating husbands from wives and fathers from families, cries of consternation, fright, and worry fill the air. None of the guards shows any sympathy. We are treated more poorly than the cargo that traveled with us. The separation of Europeans, meaning all whites, Asiatics, meaning anyone from the, across the Pacific who isn't Chinese, and Chinese continues as we were marched up a steep hill to a medical facility in one of the wooden buildings. A white woman wearing a white uniform and a starched white cap fold, folded on her folds her hands in front of her and begins speaking in English in that same loud voice that's somehow supposed to make up for the fact that no one except May and I understands what she's saying. Many of you have tried to enter our country with loathsome and dangerous parasitic diseases, she says. <laughs> this is unacceptable. The doctors and I are going to check you for trachoma, hookworm, filariasis, and liver fluke. The women around us start to cry. They don't know what this woman wants, but she's wearing white, the color of death. A Chinese woman in a long white, again, Chiang Sam is brought in to translate. I've been moderately calm up to now, but as I listen to what these people plan for us to do, I start to tremble. We're to be picked over like rice being prepared for cooking. When we're told to undress, murmurs of distress ripple through the room. Not so long ago, I would have snickered with May about the other women's prudishness because we hadn't been like most other Chinese women. We'd been beautiful girls. Good or bad, we'd shown our bodies. 
but most Chinese women are very private, never exposing themselves publicly, and rarely even in private before their husbands or even their daughters. But whatever looseness I had in the past had disappeared for good. I can't bear to be unclothed. I can't stand to be touched. I cling to May, and she steadies me. Even when the nurse tries to separate us, May stays with me. I bite my lips to keep from screaming when the doctor approaches. I look over his shoulder and out the window. I'm afraid that if I close my eyes, I'll be back in that shack with those men, hearing Mama's screams and feeling... I keep my eyes wide open. Everything's white and clean. Well, cleaner than my memories of the shack. I pretend I don't feel the icy chill of the doctor's instruments or the white softness of his hands on my flesh. I stare out across the bay. We face away from San Francisco now, and all I see is gray water disappearing into gray gray rain. Land has to be out there, but I have no idea how far it is. Once he's done with me, I allow myself to breathe again. One by one, the doctor makes his examinations while we all wait, shivering from cold and fear, until everyone is given a stool sample. So far, we've been separated from other races, then men separated from women, and now we women are separated yet again, one group to go to the dormitory, one to stay in the hospital for treatment for hookworm, which can be cured, and one for those with liver fluke to be instantly and without appeal deported back to China. Now the tears really flow. May and I are in the group that goes to the women's dormitory on the second floor of the administration building. Once we're inside, the door is locked behind us. Rows of bunks, two across and three high, are connected to one another by iron poles attached to the ceiling and floor. There are no beds to sleep on, just wire mesh. This means that the frames can be folded up to create more space in the room, but apparently no one wants to sit on the floor. The distance between the bunks is barely 18 inches. The vertical vertical gaps between bunks are so tight that at first glance I can see I won't be able to extend my arm without hitting the one above. Only the top bunk has enough space to sit upright, but that area is cluttered with drying laundry of the women already here, which hangs on strings tied between the poles at the ends of the bunks. On the floor underneath each occupied tier of bunks are a few tin bowls and cups. May leaves my side and hurries down the center aisle. She claims two top bunks next to each other near the radiator. She climbs up, lies down, and promptly goes to sleep. No one brings our luggage. All we have with us are the clothes we're wearing and our handbags. Welcome to America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. I think that gives everyone who's listening a a taste of... uh, well, there's it, there's some really thought-provoking parts in your book. I mean, it's a story. It's a it's a novel. It's about two you know beautiful girls, but it's about people you come to you know know and like and wish the best for as you're reading along, mm-hmm. and they're just taken in. And one of the the things that happens next is that they begin the interview process, which you've talked about before. And I I didn't understand at first why they didn't say they knew English. But they used that as a as a way of knowing what was coming before right. it would be translated. Right. And so they were, you know, prepared. But the in the case of the two sisters who had been married at the same time in the same ceremony, they would ask one, "What was the, you know, the where were you married?" And the person they would say, "Oh, I was married uh, in a restaurant." 
you know, and there were only seven or eight people there in the wedding party. And then the next one would say, well, I was married in a you know, room with lots of people having, you know, eating at the table. And they'd say, ha, there's right. a difference. So, yeah. They, yeah, separate them that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really insidious process. Because everyone has a different, I mean, it doesn't matter what, no matter what, you know, everyone has a different uh, memory of mm-hmm. how things happen. And mm-hmm. something so simple can be turned, you know, and, and uh no, you see that in crime investigations sure. even today. You know, you can ask five witnesses what color hair did the perpetrator have and some will say he had brown and some will say he had black and some will say, oh, there was some gray in there. Everyone has a slightly different way that they looked at something. Right. Well, I, I remember – I don't remember my wedding. If we didn't hadn't taken photos, I swear I couldn't. I you, you know. and everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> what was going on in my yeah. head was much more important yeah. than, than who was sitting in which pew. So um, I wouldn't be very good in that. The other thing that's fascinating about this is what we discover. And, and in a sense, your book is written like a mystery. And I'm assuming you did this intentionally. There's this secret, this family mm-hmm. secret. It's not just this family, but it's many of the Chinese families is that what they call paper sons. Mm-hmm. So explain that a little bit. A paper son is someone who in China bought a piece of paper saying, claiming that he was the son of a Chinese who had been born in the United States. So if you were born in the United States, you, could, you would be nat- a natural citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd be or if a, your father a, or mother came, were born in the United right. States. If, right. If they were born here, even today, you know, if you, you're born, your parents are born here, and like me, like you know, par- my par- right. my pa- I happen to be born pa- in Paris, but I'm an American citizen because my parents were American citizens. Right. And so people in China would buy this piece of paper. And the way they got it was whenever a Chinese from the United States would travel back to China, he could claim that he had had a son mm-hmm. and he would get this certificate. And he'd left him with the grandparents and or he, something. And he could say, I left him with the grandparents. And now 20 years later, he can sell that piece of paper to someone who wants to come over. This uh, was one of the main things that the inspectors were looking for at Angel Island. Not the only, but one of mm-hmm. the main and it's something that has remained a secret in families even today. Sometimes it's kind of an open secret where, you know, your your last name is Wong, but really you're a Tom. Right. Or your last name is Fong, but really you're an Eng. We have people like that in my family. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was going to ask you this because as I was reading it, as I was realizing, I, I mean, I know several, you know, Chinese people fairly well and their family name. And their history and the the signs and the ancestors that go with that are very, very important. Mm-hmm. But if you are a paper son and the offspring of a paper son, you're taking the name of someone who's in a you completely, know, completely different, different family. That's, That's right. right. Completely different family. And sometimes, though, it, it would be, let's say, a, a nephew. Mm-hmm. So my great-grandfather did bring over a lot of um, his nephews who were actual fongs, and he brought them as paper merchants. Right. They weren't actual merchants, but he said that they were his partners. So it was the same kind of thing. Because you were allowed to come in if you were, if you were Chinese, if you were a merchant, or if you were a spouse. Is that right? Or, uh, well, you could relative. if you were the wife of a merchant or a diplomat student. There were in Under the Exclusion Act, there were only four categories of Chinese who could come in. Diplomat, student minister or merchant. merchant right. And there's only one of those that you can fake. 
merchant. I mean, you can't fake sure. being a diplomat. Well, you, you might do minister. You could maybe be able to fake it. I don't know how far you'd get, but uh, I've never heard of any cases the of Church people of who came. Yeah, so that's true. <laughs> but um, I think usually those people were sponsored by mm-hmm. churches right. here to come sure. over. So um, anyway, that was one of the only ways that you could fake coming in. And many, many years later, during ni- in 1957, the government instituted the confession program, right. which had Well, asked, I think you need to go back to 48 because what happened then is the, when we take off the Chinese Exclusion Act. So Chinese now are finally allowed. Right. So. Are fine, yes, in 1948, fine, actually 1943, when okay. the U.S. entered World War II. And China was our ally. Finally, we then at that point said, if they're going to be our allies, then we have to allow the Chinese who are here in our country to become naturalized citizens. Mm -hmm. So that was that first step. And then – so finally people could become naturalized citizens, but many didn't step forward because they had this – they were already citizens because they were the sons, paper citizens. So. Uh, many people didn't come forward, but in 1957, and this was at a time, you know, we were at war in Korea and China was seen as very much the enemy. It supported North Korea and all of that. So, Mao's Little Red Book. Yeah, and yeah. All, all of that stuff. Um, there was a lot of fear about communism, and so the government did institute this this confession program, which invited people who had come as paper sons to step forward confess, and then they would be given their legitimate U.S. citizenship. It was a kind of an amnesty program. And if you look at it like that, just as I described it, it sounds pretty good. You know, you'd want to just do it. Yeah, but think of the two different words. Well, yes. A confession confession versus an amnesty. amnesty. And there was small print because it was the government. And so the small (laughs) print was it's not enough for you just to step forward and confess about yourself. You also had to rat out your friends, your neighbors, your business associates, sometimes even your own family members. Mm-hmm. And better yet, if you could say, oh, and by the way, you know, one of them is a communist, for sure you would get your citizenship. Mm-hmm. So this was something that uh, – a period that just ripped apart families, uh, businesses, communities – and I, it's something that scholars still haven't written that much about because people don't want to talk about it. It's still this moment of great shame and embarrassment and humiliation and guilt for so a lot of people. So would people just be sent back to China who'd been here or, or – Well, the... some people – well, so I'll give you some examples. So there was a woman I interviewed in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. She had actually been a, one of the docents for the Smithsonian exhibit. And she was one of five children born here. And her father stepped forward to confess that he had come as a paper son. The day he got his citizenship, they came to arrest his wife. Because in the process of confessing, he'd said, oh, yeah, and I, and I brought in my wife too. Mm-hmm. And so that family fought for eight years to be able to keep their mother in the country, and they did win. Um, you know, 1957 was not a time you wanted to be sent back to China. No. I mean, it was just, uh, just a, it was you would have just been killed, really. Or eight years you later, know? either. Or even eight right. years. Yeah, I mean, it was just not a place you wanted to go. And uh, there was another man I talked to. Um, he and his in his 80s now, mm-hmm. you know, and he and his brother had stepped forward, and they hadn't had any problems. It went very easily. But he told me. 
We have never told our children, we have never told our grandchildren Uh what we did because we aren't dead yet, so we aren't safe yet. And Because somebody can change their mind. Somebody could change their mind. And um, even today, there are a lot of families that have these paper sons. Um, There was a young man I met. He he wrote to me through my website, mm-hmm. and he, you know, and I people write to me. I write back, and you know, back and forth, back and forth. And pretty soon, he started telling me about his family and how his father and and he were always treated differently. That his grandparents just treated them differently, and everything. So one day, I wrote back and I said, "Do you, do you think your father could have been a paper son?" Mm-hmm. And he'd never even heard the term. Mm. And I saw him a few nights later at a book signing, and he was just white, you know, just devastated and just completely drained of color. And he said, you know, you were right. My father was a paper son. The people I thought were my grandparents, the people I thought were my aunts and uncles, all my cousins, I'm not even related to them at all. Right. And somehow this family had managed to keep this a secret all of these years. But he'd always felt it, you know, that he wasn't part of their family. But it's not like being an adopted child who hasn't been told they're adopted and then discovering that. It's more because it's, quote, illegal. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's look. Let's shift this tone here a little bit and look at the Chinatown Mm -hmm. that the— that the sisters come to you. I did not know, <laughs> and I'm a you know a California native. I didn't know there were four Chinatowns in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to Chinatown. I assumed it always you know been there and been like that, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, you you did you know give me information like about the um, the new Chinatown and the the China City. So tell right. tell our listeners a little bit about those places. Yes. Yeah, so for people who have been to Los Angeles and have ever seen the train station, where the train station is, that's where the original old Chinatown was. Mm-hmm. And um, when now they, was that done intentionally to take a place of the city you want to destroy, which had a lot of people living in it who were yeah they yeah. they they gave the Chinese who lived there twenty four hours to get out yeah. And so once that happened... And they weren't allowed to own property. And you couldn't own property, and there were a lot of places you couldn't rent. There were only a couple of places that really allowed Chinese to even live there at all. Mm -hmm. And so um, for part of the time, people just crowded into these last couple of remaining blocks of old Chinatown. Which there are still a couple of blocks of old Chinatown left. There's like two two sets of buildings. Hmm. One of them is now where the Chinese American Museum is. And that's actually the building where Pearl and May live when they first come to Los Angeles. And across the street was where my family store, my family store was. An so, antique store. The antique store, right. the Aunt Chinese antique store. So people crowded into that area. They crowded into what was called the city market, which was around the, the vegetable um, market. Mm-hmm. But at, produce so, market. Produce market. Right. And so – um, two other plans sort of developed simultaneously, and they opened within three weeks of each other. The first, and the one that is still there today, is New Chinatown. Today, it's called Old Chinatown. Right, but but it's no, really the it's still new Chinatown. new Chinatown to me. <laughs> <laughs> it shows how old I am. But yeah. okay, so the first one was called New Chinatown, and then there was this other project, China City. And China City was a creation of the woman who had 
opened Alvera Street. See, I always thought that was real, too. No, Alvera Street was just completely a tourist attraction invented by Christine Sterling. Gee, she fooled me. Yeah, and she wanted, <laughs> you know, to create this authentic Mexican marketplace. Right. And actually, she was pretty altruistic in the sense that she wanted, she did, Alvera Street opened in 1933. So that was a way of giving Mexican families who had no jobs during the Depression, who were being deported in huge numbers mm-hmm. out of Los Angeles mm-hmm. without any, you know, they'd been there forever, but they were being sent to Mexico, um, gave, gave them a way to have jobs. And, uh, you know, many of those families are still there today right. at, at Alvera Street. Anyway, so this authentic Mexican marketplace, it wasn't very authentic. And then she wanted to create an authentic Chinese city. So where do you go to get a Chinese city? Well, you go to Hollywood if and, you need to build it quick. So it was one square block. <laughs> surrounded, the sets out of the yeah, good earth, right? Yeah, surrounded by a miniature Great Wall, and it was built then inside from the leftover sets from the filming of The Good Earth. Right. So it wasn't terribly authentic, but it did have a lot of charm, and people used to go there to ride on rickshaws and go down the passage of 100 Surprises or nibble on China burgers or go to the um, – Chinese junk now, cafe. China burgers were just regular hamburgers, or did but they, they have soy sauce? They had on soy sauce and sautéed uh, bean sprouts. Oh, and I'll tell you something. I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who were children in China City or whose families owned shops. In fact, even the woman whose father owned the China Burger stand. Really, and. People are still trying to recreate those China burgers. There must have been some secret ingredient that went to the grave because um, people still talk about them with such fondness. Oh dear! So um, it's like the like the hot dogs at the baseball park. Yeah, never tasted never, good anywhere never, else. No, right. no, not like that. So it was it was this really very charming place. But but as you said, a kind of Hollywood Chinatown, and in fact, that was where um, there was a place called the. Um, Asiatic costume, costume company, right. and people would go there, and this is where they were hired to work as extras in Hollywood films. Now, the character you have in your book is a real-life person. Tom Gubbins yes. was a real-life person, yeah. He, he was the one who hired people. He was sort of the go-between, you know, kind of an agent who mm-hmm. hired extras and then would send them out to the studios. The interesting thing at the time, anyone who's happened to see the PBS show on Hollywood, the Chinese in Hollywood, mm-hmm. Um, probably didn't know this, but there were you know hundreds and hundreds of people who were extras who were either Chinese or cast as Japanese, depending right. on you know the yeah, time. Yeah, often cast as Japanese during World War II because mm-hmm. the Japanese were in in internment camps. And but the leads would always be American actors, right? right. Except for um, number one son, mm-hmm. Key Luke, Key Luke, in, and in the Charlie Chan series. Right. In fact, I, you read I read in here that he was uh, going to be the first naturalized American citizen. Mm-hmm. But he was working that day, <laughs> so he could, he became the second. Right. But uh, yeah, he was supposed to be the. Well, he was number two. Know, he so. was got to be number two, but he was supposed to be the very first one. That's an, very interesting. Of course, Werner Oland was the uh, man who played Charlie Chan. I mm-hmm. think he's from Denmark or some someplace. Someplace. Yeah, someplace entirely remember. strange. Okay, so we have uh, all sorts of stuff we haven't been able to cover, but uh, Hollywood and you know what happens when people have to confess to get amnesty and um, 
the sisters, baby and sisters. Oh, sisters. sisters, boy, this, sibling rivalry. Do you have a sister? I yes, I do. You, <laughs> I couldn't have written this book I, if I, I didn't. I thought you might. You uh, know, one of my sisters. Are you she, the older or younger? I'm the oldest, uh-huh. and my sister Clara, who always reads my manuscripts. There were places she wrote in the margins of the manuscripts. <laughs> oh, way to get back at Catherine. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly, like exactly. Well, is there anything you want to tell our listeners before we uh, sign off today? Oh, nothing in particular. You know, this book for me is the one that is the closest to my heart. Uh, I was reading something really? about say yeah, that again. It, yeah, it is. It's the, just really the closest to my heart. I, uh, I because it is about Chinatown. It's before my living memory, but these were the li- the memories of my grandparents and great aunts and uncles and so many people who I knew who lived through this time mm-hmm. and the places, of course are places that I spent so much time as a child. And so when you're writing, you know, one of the best things about writing is that it allows me, and with this book in particular, to spend time with the people and places who are gone now, you know, but also these are the people and places who made me who I am, who who, um, gave me their stories. And I wouldn't be the person I am today without them. So this one is the closest to my heart. I was just doing some research on Ming Dynasty painters, and I came across a quote from one of them who said, art is the heartbeat of the artist. And I've been thinking about that, and, and um, I, can, I, I think it's sort of true to say that words are my heartbeat, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, this book, as I said, is closest to my heart, and I, I hope other people sort of – it speaks to their hearts as well, you know, that they get feel that sense of loss that we all experience um, for the people and places who disappear from us. Right. Well, thank you. This book is Shanghai Girls. The author we've had a wonderful time with in the last hour is Lisa C. That's S-E-E. So look for it. Pick it up. I think you will really enjoy your opportunity to delve into a – a time that's not that far away, and uh, really get to know these two sisters. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Word by Word, Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's show is a listener-requested reprise of the 2009 conversation with novelist Lisa C. about her novel, Shanghai Girls. Readers can follow up with Pearl and May and their 19-year-old daughter, Joy, on her quest to find her roots in the midst of Mao's cultural revolution in the novel, Dreams of Joy. Originally engineered by Mark Fuller, today's updates are by Jesse Fancushin, our KRCB-FM station manager is Sean Knight, our logistics coordinator is Wendy Nicholson, our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I'm your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to join us for the next Word by Word broadcast from 4 to 5 on Sunday afternoon, August 14th. Until then, here is a thought from Lisa C. I wonder if there was anything I would have done differently. I hope I would have done everything differently, except I know everything would have turned out the same. That's the meaning of fate.
hard time trying how to get along. Spend my time trying how to get along. If I had a dollar now for every time I cry, well I'd be a rich man. Come the day I die, well I'd be a rich man. Come the Trouble. 